Has your fuse box gone haywire? Is your water pressure too weak? Or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade? They don't last forever, you know. Well, the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that. So if a block sink is not helping with Wednesday's hump day, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. TNCs apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details. Talking History on News Talk. Well, good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're debating the Battle of Verdun and we'll be taking a new look at one of the longest and bloodiest battles in world history. We'd love you to join our discussion. Just send us a text on 53106 and text cost 30 cents. Or you can email us at talkinghistory at newstalk.com. Last week, we discussed the story of a brilliant U-boat commander who was tried for treason because he was anti-Nazi and heard about Emperor Nero and the fire that ended a dynasty and more besides in our monthly book show and if you want to listen back to this or any of our other shows just go to our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts the Little Museum of Dublin is running a new lecture series on icons uh, starting June the 22nd two historians are going to be looking at different icons every week they'll be uh, broadcast online uh, from the Little Museum of Dublin uh, Mary McAuliffe the wonderful historian who we've had on on the show many times is taking three of the icons I'm taking the other three and uh, there'll be details on the Little Museum of Dublin website in the weeks ahead uh, about how you'll be able to get tickets for that if interested but some interesting figures being discussed Margaret Skinner, Kathleen Clark Robert Emmett Daniel O'Connell Noel and Phyllis Brown and so on Tonight's debate is on the Battle of Verdun It has been said that Verdun made France the last great victory of French arms but in tonight's show we want to explore the myths and the reality behind one of the most iconic battles of the First World War, a battle that came to symbolise the terror of industrialised warfare. Taking place over 10 months in 1916, Verdun was one of the longest and most costly battles in history, a time of intense artillery bombardments and men being mown down in great waves. It's a battle we first looked at in 2013 and tonight we return to Verdun with a second panel of experts to explore the battle and its legacy. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome that panel of experts. Professor Paul Jankowski is Raymond Ginger Professor of History at Brandeis University in Massachusetts and his books include Verdun, The Longest Battle of the Great War and his most recent book is All Against All, The Long Winter of 1933 and the Origins of the Second World War. Jonathan Bracken is an eminent military historian and the author of The Verdun Regiment, Into the Furnace, the 151st Infantry Regiment in the Battle of Verdun, 1916. You're very welcome and later in the show we'll be joined by Professor Francois Cochet, Professor Emeritus at the University of Lorraine Metz and someone who uh, is on the scientific committee of the Verdun Memorial Battlefield site and Dr John Mosier Professor Emeritus at Loyola University in New Orleans and the author of Verdun The Lost History of the Most Important Battle of World War One. Uh, Paul ver- uh, you're very welcome back to the show and I want to begin with two of the myths that sprung up after the war we had uh, the myth of Moloch uh, the idea that uh, the German military tried to Uh, put out that uh, it was a deliberate strategy to bleed the French white during this campaign and then you also had the myth of Thermopylae that this was a a brave band of of heroic defenders holding out against superior numbers and in some ways these were competing and contradictory myths Yes Excuse me, Uh, yes indeed Uh, in fact they're incompatible um, the uh, the first one you mentioned, uh, the myth of Moloch, is indeed um, taken. Uh, obviously, it's from the um, it's from uh, the Hebrew Bible, a Canaanite god um, to whom the Canaanites were said to have sacrificed their children, and whom he willingly devoured. And uh, this um, idea was uh, not helped by um, was a, uh, in a way um, something the French seized on 
when after the war they read an account by uh, the German, um, the chief of the German general staff, <clears throat> Erich von Falkenhayn, which purported to show that he had essentially intended to bleed the French white. Uh, and there, the myth of Moloch um, was uh, hand, uh, handily, um, handily employed. The second one you mentioned, the myth of Thermopylae, was one that the French um, uh, resorted to, or that they invoked uh, very early on. In fact, almost as soon as the German offensive began in February 1916, uh, as you said, it is the um, uh, the battle in what uh, 480 BC, where Leonidas and his Spartans held off the um, vastly superior hordes of the Persian Empire in order to guard the access to the heartland. Uh, and in this case, the French obviously saw themselves in the role of the Spartans. Now, um, both of these myths are individually questionable. Perhaps later on we'll get into what Falkenhayn did or did not intend. Uh, the myth of Thermopylae, though, is um, uh, 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 somewhat difficult to sustain uh, in that, the, um, first of all, Verdun did not uh, provide any access to the French heartland. Uh, it was not the kind of a key to uh, some, some central invasion route. Uh, and the uh, French um, did defend it, but initially, uh, very unwillingly. Uh, Joffre <clears throat> would only, uh, the French, the chief of the French general staff, was initially not really inclined to do anything more than was strictly necessary to defend the place. He had interests elsewhere. Um, finally, the incompatibility of these myths. The myth of Moloch uh, has the defenders uh, willingly rushing into the uh, voracious jaws of the attackers, whereas the myth of Thermopylae has the, um, the defenders waiting to uh, receive the waves of attackers breaking on their wall of defense. It'd be difficult to see how both could, uh, could hold, um, yet they lasted. And it's fascinating what you say there about the fact that it, at the start, the French weren't necessarily seeing this as, as such an important uh, strategic location. But as it went on, it seems to have assumed uh, an important place in, 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 in for the nation. Or is that something that came later that it became this? When did the symbol of Verdun become so important? Well, that's a key question. That's a key question. Um, in the um, account that he gave after the war, uh, Erich von Falkenhayn, whom I mentioned, the German uh, chief of the German general staff, claimed that he had wanted to provoke the French into defending a place which they thought was sacred and which they had to defend for purposes of, if, if anything, uh, for its symbolic value. Uh, that's highly questionable. Uh, in 1916, Verdun did not have great symbolic value for the French. Uh, if you had wanted to attack a symbolic place, there were plenty of others nearby that would have made more sense, including Reims with its great cathedral and so on. But um, it is unquestionable and doubtable, and it's undoubtedly the case that uh, initially at the uh, French general staff, there was talk of really a minimal defense, even of perhaps withdrawing a few miles, reforming French lines, perhaps 10 or 20 miles back. Um, those kinds of contingency plans are perhaps normal, but it was the politicians who wouldn't hear of it. Uh, Briand, the uh, prime minister at the time, insisted, uh, and uh, Joffre quite willingly went along with him. And when, um, I think some weeks later, Poincaré, the president of the French Republic, visited the site, and the commander, was by then uh, Philippe Pétain, um, made various hypothetical comments about possibly withdrawing from one bank of the river to another. It's from the uh, right bank to the left bank. The Poincaré said, absolutely unthinkable. Don't even think of it, Mon Général. It would be a parliamentary disaster. Now, the thought was that to abandon Verdun, especially without a fight, would deal such a blow to French morale uh, that uh, certainly the government might not survive and uh, other consequences might be um, uh, equally dire. But it did, over time, and while the battle was raging, uh, become a, a symbol of French resistance. And that it um, continued to be uh, growing in leaps and bounds once the war was over. Um, 
the uh, stages of that can be traced. I don't know that we have um, time to get into them, but the prestige factor, uh, once the Battle of Verdun had been engaged, at least the Battle of 1916, is uh, unquestionably something that took flight uh, in, um, uh, in, uh, in the French collective mind, uh, as it did to a certain extent in the German, but that would be another story. And that whole idea of they shall not pass became part of that image of Verdun as well. And it's interesting that although, as you show, it wasn't the most decisive battle of the First World War and it wasn't the bloodiest, in some ways, certainly for the French, it became the most important because of all of this symbolism that became associated around it and that it, it assumed this significance in in terms of, of, of the nation and uh, for what it represented, if not necessarily for what it actually was. Uh, indeed, yes. Um, and that is perhaps one reason why the French tended to exaggerate their own losses um, after the war. Uh, in um, popular accounts, popular histories, guidebooks, films, and so on, they wanted to, 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 to stress the sheer scale of their sacrifice. After all, um, they had fought alone. They had no allies there, um, unlike other battles, the Somme and, and other, other offensives and, uh, and the, the War of Movement in 1914, when they did have allies, especially the British. Uh, it fell down, they were more or less alone. Uh, the battle was interminable. It went uh, on and on. It was, in their eyes, a defensive battle, which is now a, a, a role they like, highly symbolic for the role they, in their eyes, had played throughout the First World War, that they were the victims of German aggression. And nothing could be clearer than that at Verdun, in their eyes. Uh, and, um, well, as I mentioned, it, um, you know, the, the, the interminable bloodletting, uh, uh, this, uh, all these um, tended to uh, make it a, uh, a, uh, not just a site of memory, but a, a symbol uh, of France, uh, along with a couple of other factors. Um, one uh, being that in their eyes they had won the battle. Now, one might argue about that, and historians have, but in a, uh, perhaps in a, in, a, in an impasse, in a stalemate, the defender wins, perhaps, I don't know, but in their eyes, they certainly won the battle. And another more, um, the, the, the uh, means of transmission of this are, I think, quite significant. Uh, because of the system of rotation of the French troops at Verdun, the, um, uh, some two, probably about two-thirds of the French army actually passed through the forts and trenches and ravines and hillsides of Verdun uh, throughout that year or perhaps over a bit, a bit longer span of time than that, but some two-thirds of the entire French army. That meant that here was a very important vector of memory. Um, as the number of descendants, grandchildren, great-nephews, and so on, who would run into each other saying, oh, yes, my, uh, my great-grandfather was at Baudin, my great-uncle. Uh, no idea the number of French people I've met who have said just that. Uh, uh, finally, if I could add one perhaps more a mournful thought or a, a sharper one, it is that this was in some way the last French victory. And I think you alluded to that in your opening. There would be minor ones but uh, after that, but uh, nothing like it, if indeed it was a French victory. So for all those reasons, uh, it, it did come to play a role. And um, it does mean, though, um, that just exactly how they wrote about it tended to change over time in school books and so on. But that's another matter. I don't know if we'll get into that. Jonathan, it was very interesting to hear Paul there describe the the landscape, the, the terrain with its forts and its trenches and its ravines. And it seems that the landscape contributed to the horrors of the fighting because, it, especially with those ravines and the, the walls, it seemed to create a, a particularly brutal environment for fighting and seems to have made it a, a particularly bloody kind of hell for the combatants. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in all honesty, they were quite possibly some of the worst ever experienced in human history in terms of conditions on the ground. Of course, you had as a baseline the usual signatures of fighting on the Western Front, the filth, the mud, the rats, 
frequent gunfire and artillery barrages, poison gas attacks, and, and of course, ever-present death. But what separated Verdun from other battles were, were conditions unique to this engagement. It was its sheer scale, as you all have been speaking to, its intensity, its length, and the impact that these things had on the human psyche of the men enduring it all. Um, to start, you had the ferocity of the heavy artillery barrages that went on night and day for weeks and months at, at, at a time and utterly destroyed the landscape along with any defensive positions. So trenches were flattened, concrete forts pulverized, villages were wiped off the face of the map, entire forests disappeared. Indeed, Verdun became infamous for its lack of trenches, of shelters, and organizational, organizational support. And it was a total wasteland, um, something like the surface of the moon, but add water. And, and, and even though this is pretty difficult for us to imagine today, uh, life in Verdun was reduced to living in the craters made by exploding shells, where basic hygiene was non-existent, where you would experience extreme thirst, hunger, fatigue, uh, sleep depression for days and sometimes weeks on end. And everything needed to be brought up to the front lines and the backs of men. So the little food that did make it up consisted of maybe some cold soup and stew, uh, uh, some bread, some canned meat and fish. Um, but because of the constant shelling and broken ground, it meant that this, uh, this food and water often didn't reach the troops in the front lines. And the same dangers you have from shelling and machine gunning and gassing meant you couldn't evacuate the wounded. And even if you did manage to, the first aid posts were often lacking in even basic supplies like bandages, medicine, even water. Uh, meanwhile, the bodies of the slain would lie piled up around you and if you attempted to bury these corpses the constant shelling would just simply disinter them again so you couldn't get clean you lived in dirt and mud you were surrounded by by the dead and these were these were people you knew these were your friends and meanwhile they're being swarmed with flies and you know covered in maggots and, and rats are feasting on them so uh you know it's just everything that we know about trench warfare just amplified up and uh to to a real extreme extent and what was the experience then of the 151st Infantry Regiment uh, in terms of their morale when they were dealing with such horrific conditions and their experiences under fire? And you know what comes out of the various memoirs and testimonies that you were able to, to come across? Yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, uh, the experience was, was similar to what they had gone through before. Um, they had just come out of a, a, a training period where they were supposedly, you know, learning the new um, tra uh, crafts and trades of, of infantry fighting that would eventually become the foundation for what uh, modern military still use today. They had the 151st had been to the to the dance, as the French, uh, as the saying went, amongst French troops. In other words, they were a battle-hardened unit that had fought in uh, bloody engagements in 1915, specifically in the Argonne Forest, for a grueling six months and then again in the second Champagne offensive in the fall that year. Um, and there was also contingent present going to Verdun that were new troops. They were young recruits of the class of 1916 cohort who had not yet received their, their baptism in fire. Um, when the regiment got its marching orders on the 25th of February 1916, just a few days into the beginning of the battle, the anticipation of the ranks was actually quite palpable. Um, while they knew that life that awaited them there at Verdun in the days ahead would be very hard. There was still this eagerness to get into the fight, to see the job done, so to speak. Uh, and it would become something of a, of a rite of passage. Um, so there was, despite this imminent threat of death and dismemberment, um, there remained this inescapable sort of draw, this elusive draw into the maw of battle. But all that is before the men get to experience uh, Verdun for themselves, their first rotation in March 1916 and what fighting at Verdun would mean. Uh, and this sentiment seems to have disappeared when you look at their, when you read their diaries, you read their memoirs, you see their letters, um, it becomes brutally clear, uh, even amongst the experienced veterans, um, the, the sobering up and the stripping away of, their, hum of their, their humanity, basically, when they go up for a second and a third time in April and May of that same year. And, you know, really at the heart of the matter, we come up against this cool reality, this harsh truth about the nature of combat in the Great War. I had mentioned that they had gone through an intensive training period right before they go in where they're learning you know, how to use rifle grenades and hand grenades and automatic rifles and trench mortars, all the latest in weaponry, and how to employ these you know, as an autonomous unit fighting with heavy firepower and using fire movement tactics. But the cruel reality of the Great War 
is that despite the training, despite the advances in weaponry and all the resourcefulness and determination that could be mustered, all this could just be crushed by the annihilating power of artillery that completely dominated the battlefields of the Great War. And all the well-made plans, all the aspirations of the commanders were just as often drowned in the muddy, uh, shell-ravaged no-man's land that separated the two sides. And in terms of the age of these recruits who were in the the, the regiment, uh, what how old were they, and how many how many were killed during the the fighting? Well, the average age of the French soldier was around twenty eight years old, which is uh, a little older than what is found in the British and certainly the American armies. Um, but bear in mind that since the time of the French Revolution, France had put in place a system of universal conscription for the male population. Since 1905, all fit Frenchmen were recruited to serve for a total of 25 years in the military, beginning the year in which they turned 21 years of age. Each year, a new cohort, as I had mentioned before, was called up and then mustered into service. A man's total service was composed of periods spent first in the active army, then the reserves, and finally the territorials. And finally, in 1913, this commitment was increased to 28 years. The recruitment age dropped to 20. So during the Great War, as the need for replacements increased, the classes were called up earlier and earlier. And in the end, roughly half, half of the total male population, that's like little baby all the way up to, you know, a hundred-year-old guy that remembers Napoleon. Uh, you had troops as young as 18 serving alongside men, uh, men in their 50s. Now, in terms of the, the 151's losses, um, let me start by emphasizing that there are actually two formal engagements at Verdun. The, the one in 1916, which claims the mantle of the Battle of Verdun, but there was also fighting there in, the, in a few months in the second Battle of uh, Verdun in 1917. And it's, but it is that 1916 ones in terms of the, the length and intensity and lethality that we typically are, are referring to the Battle of Verdun as we are here in this context. Um, in total, the 151st would lose roughly 3,200 men killed or wounded in the furnace of Verdun including 2,200 in its three rotations in 1916 and another 1,000 men in its three rotations in 1917. To put this into context, right, the, the, average, the regiment's average fighting strength in these periods is between 2,300 men to 2,800 men. So these losses constitute roughly 50% losses at each rotation. And some of these men are lightly wounded and will be able to rotate back in. Uh, but entire companies some 200 men strong were routinely wiped out or reduced to a mere dozen traumatized survivors. And I should add that this doesn't include men, the hundreds that were evacuated for sickness and disease. Um, as a proportion of the regiment's total losses suffered during the war, which was over 6,000 killed and, and about 7,000 wounded, the losses of Verdun constitute around a quarter of that figure. Uh, but the regiment's combat effectiveness was only sustained through the regular feeding of replacement troops to fill in the gaps. Um, but finally, again, we must emphasize here that it wasn't simply the number of casualties, but the manner and the setting in which they occurred, um, incurred that were, uh, that really makes Verdun stand out. And Jonathan, for those who survived, what, what was, what were their feel, what was their feelings afterwards? Did they feel like they were the heroes of Thermopylae who had, who had defended this, this fortress against, uh, the, the invaders or were they consumed by the, the trauma and stress of having endured and, and survived such a horrific, uh, campaign? Well, so there's two things to denote here. There's the, there's the period while the fighting is happening, and fortunately that's what I was using, are memoirs and letters either written during the war or, or primarily during the war and then completed after the war. And, you know, some of these guys, they, they speak in a way that they understand the gravitas of the moment. They understand that from their perspective, this is a fight of national existence. Um, and so while they hate what they're going through, they nonetheless generally speaking, saw the need to, to go through it and to just sort of put their head down and, and slog through it and come out the other side. But afterwards, um, they, they certainly say, you know, they'll never be able to make French people do this again. Um, you read letters of guys saying that they felt sort of metaphorically crushed or flattened by the experience. Men writing home to their wives saying, I didn't want to tell you this before, but I feel empty now. Um, so certainly a profound psychological effect. And, you know, if we get into later on, perhaps what the, what the lessons are, we can, can speak to this in, in further detail.
Very good. Paul, we have a very interesting text in from Brian in Cork on 53106 and it's a very clever reversal of of, of of the phrase that we were talking about. Brian wonders whether given Germany's collapse in, in 1918, did Verdun in fact bleed Germany dry? Um, th- that is, it's indeed, a, it's a, it's a perfectly, um, a per- it's a, it's, it's a good question. Um, the losses, um, on both sides were about equal. This was about one to one with a, probably a slight and slightly heavier losses on the French side than on the German. Um, in, again, that's in ni- between February and December 1916, and, n- and not um, not counting the other engagements at, at Verdun, whether in um, the before 1916 or, or after the, the summer 1917 was just mentioned. Now, um, you could, considering the fact that Germany was outnumbered on the Western Front, argue that that means it was a greater loss to Germany than it was to to the Allies, and that in the long run, therefore, Verdun hurt the Germans more. Uh, it'd be very difficult. I, I at least never figure out, found, found a way to estimate whether the Battle of Verdun had weakened the Germans more than it had weakened the French on the Somme, which began in July 1916. Uh, I don't know how to perform that calculation. Um, because the French had to scale back their participation at the Somme, and obviously it, um, it uh, uh, affected what the Germans could do at Verdun because they, uh, uh, part of their reason for switching to a defensive stance in the summer of 1916. Over the long haul, uh, it is quite possible that the, um, your listener who, uh, who, who wrote in uh, has it right, if it's supposing that that is what indeed happened. The number of Germans who afterwards said that the German army never really recovered from Verdun uh, is, um, I mean, there are, there are numbers of, of Germans who say that. And um, the um, German military archivists and historians, right after the war, trying to figure out what had happened, clearly thought of it as a, as a bad mistake. Uh, it's a matter of, of judgment. Uh, uh, in the long run, what allowed the Allies to win on the Western Front was the arrival of so many Americans. Um, and there, the losses that the Germans had suffered in 1916 and later, especially in 1918, um, combined with the growing numerical weight uh, that the Americans made possible is, is what happened. And in that, Verdun did play its role. Did play its part. Now that's a confusing answer, but uh, it's a um, it's a question of how you measure the long-term impacts of losses. And I, I would just add on, on this question of losses, the numbers of losses. The work I did, I found no more difficult, intractable question working in the archives and trying to figure out who had lost what, when, and, and how they counted their losses than this one. Um, so I give a guarded answer to that very good question. Very good. And thanks to uh, uh, thanks to our listeners as well for sending that in, Brian, in Cork. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, I'll be talking to Professor John Mosier about the lost history of one of the most important battles of the First World War. So stay with us here on News Talk. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we debate the Battle of Verdun. And I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. John Mosier, who's Professor Emeritus at Loyola University in New Orleans and an expert on military history. And his books include Verdun, The Lost History of the Most Important Battle of World War One. John, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you. Can we talk about that that interesting idea that you, you set out in your subtitle, The Lost History? Why do you think that we have such an incomplete understanding of Verdun and why have there been so many myths and distortions surrounding the battle? Oh, wow. Uh, well, there are three basic problems um, about the First World War and particularly about Verdun. Uh, <clears throat> the first is basically French geography which is very confusing to foreigners and actually to a lot of Frenchmen as well. The second is the absolute and total secrecy that the French army maintained 
uh, over the battlefield, battlefields of the war. They just, they had the whole thing sealed off. Uh, the regulations for correspondence were draconian, uh, and no one was allowed into the zone of the armies uh, without being accompanied by a staff officer who was basically a monitor. And now even the president of France had to get approval to go visit his constituents. So the army could basically say anything it wanted to say, and they did. Uh, and since most of what they were doing didn't work very well, uh, they basically could minimize it or cover it up. Um, the, the third thing I think that, that created this was deliberate propaganda uh, on the part of the Allies. Uh, the French high command was very good at minimizing all of their problems, maximizing uh, the German losses. Uh, and it was more, it wasn't just cynical propaganda. Uh, it's the worst kind because as news traveled up the chain of command and got progressively massaged, uh, the people at the top tended to believe uh, that things were going much better than they were. Uh, I, I brought, I talked about that in, in the book, but I, and I kind of glossed over a fourth one, which is, I think about it, it's, it's a lot more important. Uh, military historians and a lot of serving officers in the First World War didn't really understand uh, that either the importance of topography uh, or the importance of indirect fire in heavy artillery. Uh, so all of those things sort of work together. Uh, the reason the early, and lastly, the reason the early battles, I think, were not understood was not just because on, from the French point of view, they were total disasters. Uh, for example, in the 1915 right bank offensive out, uh, for, for Dunn, uh, the French army had roughly the same casualties as the British did on the, in the first days of the Somme. But uh, also, they had a problem understanding, and I know this sounds bizarre today, but uh, this whole territory in Lorraine was just terra incognito for the French uh, officers. And things like contour lines, uh, they really didn't understand. I was talking to a French officer who was south of Verdun conducting maneuvers, and we were talking about this, and he said very sarcastically, de dealing with, said he said, France is, you know, France is not a sandbox. What he meant was it wasn't just a big flat surface. And what seems to us relatively small differences in elevation uh, gave one side a tremendous advantage. So when the Germans had the top of a butte that was only maybe 300 meters high, um, their artillery observers could interdict the whole area in front of them to the range of like, you know, five, five, six, seven thousand meters, and most of the the buttes in this particular area uh, were almost had almost vertical cliffs, so they were almost impossible to to take by direct assault, uh, which accounted for the the horrible casualties. And there's also kind of an interesting idea that you explore in the book how. It's seen often as this long one-year battle, but actually it's probably better understood as eight distinct battles. Oh, yeah, eight or nine. I, and to a certain extent, that's kind of, you, you, these things are all kind of arbitrary. But yes, I think the other problem is that, uh, particularly since in, in the English-speaking world, almost everything that people know derives from, from the British experiences on a very small and, and uh, quite different part of the Western Front. Uh, the, the British Expeditionary Force really, for most of the war, only had about 10% of the Western Front, 50, maybe 50 miles, 45, 50 miles. 
And <clears throat> that was just a completely different, different experience. So uh, there was no real concept of strategy. For, and th that's one of the unknown things that doesn't get talked about much in the, in the war. But, but the battles for Verdun were all had a strategic importance, basically, because the only way, the only real practical way into the center of France after 1871 was the Meuse River Valley. The French engineers knew that, and they realized that just north of Verdun, there was a wonderful choke point formed by the, the heights of the Meuse on one side and the ridges of the Argonne Forest on the other. And that's why they put the forts there. So when the Germans ad advanced in 1914, they very sensibly attacked on the, the flanks, which was standard German doctrine since the 1880s called Aufrollen. And they aimed at a double envelopment, um, which, was very, which was very successful. So those initial battles because they were on the flanks, or what the French would call the wings, uh, were given different names, pretty logically, because, I mean, this is a really big area. I mean, I mean the, the, the sector that we're talking about was essentially probably, depending on how you count it, you know, a good 100 miles, and, and for, which was almost 20%, 25% of the Western Front. So sort of naturally, if, you're, if your unit was in an engagement in one part, one particular sector, that's the name you gave it. And I suspect that a lot of the, the combatants, particularly on the French side, uh, didn't really understand how what they were doing related to the, uh, the, the, the strategy, both of encircling Verdun, which the Germans did uh, by the end of September 1914, they had basically turned it into a bulge in the front, and they cut off the, the main supply lines in, into it. Uh, so the, when the French were trying to relieve them, when you, when you read the, uh, the, the accounts of the survivors of those battles, it's pretty clear that no one had ever told them why they were actually fighting in this particular area. So, so the whole and the whole concept of strategy on the Western Front uh, doesn't get talked about very much. So, but yeah, I mean, they had separate names, and so when the Americans got there uh, in the war, so of course they knew even less. Of, they knew absolutely nothing about where they were. So the names that our armies gave to the 1918 offensives uh, indicated they were totally different parts of the front. Uh, you have to be there and walk or drive around and suddenly you start realizing hey, all these areas are related. I mean, you can see them if you're on one of the buttes, for example, the Vauquois or Les Apages, you can you can see or you well, you can see the main forts of Verdun or you you could and you could back in those days. Excellent. Well, John, thanks so much and for providing such a brilliant new perspective for us here on the Battle of Verdun and making us think about it in a different way. Dr. John Mosier, his book is Verdun: The Lost History of the Most Important Battle of World War 1, and we'll be back with more on the battle after this break. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the Battle of Verdun. A nice text in from Elizabeth in Rahini on 53106 saying how awful war is. The loss of life in France was shocking and Elizabeth is enjoying the show. We heard there before the break from Dr. Don John Mosier and we were uh, rejoined by our panellists, Professor Paul Jankowski and Jonathan Bracken and also by Professor Francois Cochet of the Verdun Memorial. And uh, Francois, you're very welcome to the show and I was wondering, could you tell our listeners about about the Verdun Memorial because we've heard earlier from Paul about how so many he hears from so many people in France about a, a relative an ancestor who who passed through Verdun or fought in Verdun uh, during the First World War so it seems to have that connection with with so many French people even even in the present day yeah uh, you know by the end of, of the First World War a lot of veterans intend to, to visit the place where they fought 
uh, in the biggest battle uh, of the world, of course, at the highest. The first, uh, first generation of uh, public memories rising during the, the years 1920s and 1930s that can be intensified by the, the feeling of, of sorrow and, and, and mourning. And the, the Drummond Ossuary is certainly the most important monument of this first generation of uh, shaping the, the Burton memory. But after the Second World War, uh, the need is very strong among the, the, the veterans, the surviving veterans of the Great War, to, to explain to younger generations that they felt what they felt and what they believed in Verdun. Uh, it's quite difficult after World War II, of course. Uh, so appeared at the end of 1950, the will to build a, a real memorial that can carry and endorse the, the, the fighting experience of all veterans uh, passed through the, the Virgin Battle at all. The deal was huge, in fact. Um, it needed to collect uniforms, arms, uh, a lot of old equipment used both by uh, French as uh, German soldiers. It was necessary to, uh, to, to create uh, an educational discourse, a complete speech uh, toward the, 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 the future visitors to explain the battle and make it as easily understanding as, as possible. So uh, a name obviously appeared at the, the end of uh, the 15th. Uh, this name is Maurice Genevois. He was, of course, a well-known writer by this time. He was uh, the professor secretary of the prestigious French Academy. But Genevois was mainly a, a witness and a sort of a kind of living memory of all the soldiers who fought for, for Verdun. You know, it was it was uh, seriously injured during the, the Battle of Les Epages, uh, very close to, to Verdun, uh, one year before the, the German attack upon Verdun. But he, he intimately knew the, the war uh, through his flesh and his blood. As a lieutenant, he, he led a platoon at war and could speak of every traumatism known by, by soldiers. So he, he really was the, the right man in the right place to build the, the memorial. And Maurice Genevois uh, was not the only man to, to carry this memorial project, but uh, when the memorial officially opened on September 1967, uh, Genevois really embodied the, the whole dream of uh, shaping the, the soldier's memory of, of Verdun. Uh, from this day, uh, the memorial tells not only the, the Great War, uh, but tells the soldiers' testimony uh, with the German or the French eyes. Uh, very close to the memorial at Fleury, uh, devant Louvain, sit several several places that re resume uh, the Battle of Verdun. The fortresses of Vaux, uh, the fortress of Douaumont, located at, at less than uh, two kilometers from the memorial and body the French military uh, resistance uh, concerning Vaux and, and, uh, and Dumont. Uh, and the, the, the Dumont fort is um, part of German memory, very, very important. So uh, so we have a complete memory landscape at the, the fighting think... experience uh, with the traces of trenches. Uh, the mourning and deaths with the ossuary and national cemetery, and uh, the story of memory with the memorial. I really think that there is nowhere else such a density of so symbolical places of the world. And I think it's very significant that it does remember both French and German combatants yes, yes, uh, yes. and the civilian populations that were lost as well. Do you get many visitors and do you get many visitors that of, of descendants of, of, of and family members from France and indeed Germany who want to see uh, where their ancestors, uh, uh, where their ancestors had been? So we have um, the, the large part of visitors are French, but uh, a, a 
about 25% are strangers, mainly German and from Belgium too. Uh, and effectively, the, 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 the main aim for the future is uh, now to develop the, the family memory. It's very, very important. And a lot of people uh, come, come back to Verdun, not, not only to, to learn the battle, but mainly now to learn where the great-grandfather fought. And that is very, very important. And you also have a range of ordnance there that uh, visitors can see, rifles, machine guns, artillery, but also uh, uniforms and equipment of the, of the two armies. Ah. So, of course, it's nearly impossible to drive a story of Great War without showing military items. Mainly because the First World War was an incredible material war. Uh, only the German artillery uh, on the days before the 21st of February in 1916, of course, needs no less than 213 trains of ammunition. More than 2,000 German artillery cannons of all size uh, opened fire on the, the first day of German attack. So the, the, the weapons of all kinds are the tools, are, are the, the tools of soldiers, in fact. And we have to, to show them that without any fascinating regard, these equipments not only tell a short, a short history of technology, but behind these uh, uniforms or, or arms, there are always men that wear them. And it's why we have to present arms and uniforms. Very interesting. Uh, Professor Paul Jankowski, uh, we've been, I suppose, throughout the programme looking at the, the, the significance, the impact, the legacy of, of the battle. I suppose one of the, the legacies was the, the, in terms of the reputation of General Patan, who, who we've mentioned, and the fact that uh, he became the line of, of Verdun and it helped establish his reputation in, 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 in terms of the hearts of the French people. Indeed. Um, he was um, known after the war as Le Vainqueur de Verdun, the victor of Verdun. Um, and uh, around Pétain as well in the interwar years, a, um, a, certain, a certain halo emerged, a certain myth. Um, he was himself of a rural background. Uh, the uh, idea that Verdun was defended by an army of infantrymen, many of whom, a very large number of whom came from peasant background like his own, uh, and who, sat, who stolidly, solidly provided the human wall against the um, assault of German uh, artillery that Francois referred to a minute ago, um, Pétain could be identified with that that cause and that kind of fighting. He was also identified with the um, the defensive mindedness, the unwillingness to embark upon wild and very, very costly offensives. However, um, I think that uh, some of, uh, if not contested this, uh, this uh, standing, I think it does need to be somewhat corrected. The French resistance at Verdun began at once before Pétain even arrived on the scene a few days later. Uh, what Pétain did was to give order and organization to a defensive system that was already taking shape. Um, and there were, I need hardly say, uh, other commanders at Verdun. And for a while, it was not clear which one of them would, would claim the, um, uh, the uh, would, uh, would, uh, would enjoy the mantle uh, of the victor, the laurels of the victor. But the phrase that you mentioned um, earlier, Ils ne passeront pas, or really, on ne passe pas, was really was uttered by Nivelle, General Nivelle. Um, but it was in fact a phrase that uh, existed in French popular songs and French popular uh, culture, and it had come from there. Uh, but it is associated, I think, uh, with um, uh, with uh, with Pétain. So. Uh, 
it is unquestionable that before the um, role that he came to play in 1940 and after uh, with the, the Vichy regime, uh, uh, Pétain had acquired the uh, mantle of the wise, the solid, the reliable uh, defender of the country because of his role at Verdun. But as usual, historians need to um, need to correct it, and some of them find that uh, 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 that uh, 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 saintliness quite excessive. Very good, uh, Jonathan. We've you you mentioned earlier about possible lessons that uh, were learned from Verdun. Or what do you think were the lessons, and how do you think it should be remembered? Uh, well, what are the lessons? from a battle that's come to symbolize the slaughter and futility of this war. Um, in the context purely of a military strategy, I think one of the more obvious takeaways is to be vigilant of stagnancy setting into the way in which a nation's armed forces fights a war. In this case, the lesson learned from Verdun by French military leaders, uh, particularly um, General Pétain, who go on to be a marshal, was to double down on static defenses. The vision of a you know, quote-unquote wall of France took hold in the 1920s and 1930s, which would be capable of holding back a future uh, possible German invasion. And of course, that possibility became real. Uh, this, of course, would later be called the Maginot Line. And France's overwrought reliance on this, together with other complicated factors that we won't go into now, it's a lot of scope, resulted in the quick collapse of French forces uh, under the German Blitzkrieg in May 1940. But to be frank, um, to think of the lesson in such a limited framework uh, doesn't do the question justice in my mind. We need to look deeper and place this in a more meaningful human frame of reference. If Verdun epitomizes the slaughter and the fertility, uh, futility of the Great War, which I strongly believe it does, then I believe it also epitomizes the potential or perhaps even inevitable consequences of nationalism played out to its end. For centuries, Western empires sought to subjugate, to conquer, to take from other peoples and from the natural world. And to do this, the ruling classes need to turn people against each other, to have us focus on our differences and to see the world generally from a perspective of scarcity. And when we are convinced to see only what we lack, especially in the context of materiality, then our primary drivers are going to be based in fear, greed, envy, and prejudice. And in August 1914, this culminated with Western empires leading the world into an unprecedented war. And as that war dragged on and intensified, the fear and hatred of the peoples caught up in it continued to ratchet up. It becomes a spiral of violence where whole societies grew to accept more and more destruction being wrought on their enemies, while also tolerating more and more sacrifice on their own part, culminating in the Battle of Verdun. So in my mind, the real lessons are to be aware of what these forces of empire writ large and nationalism are, uh, what their goals have always been and will always be and how they achieve these goals. Excellent, Jonathan. I think you know, that, that, uh, we're, be- we're beaten by time, but I think that's a wonderfully profound note on which to end our discussion tonight. So my thanks to my brilliant panel, Professor Paul Jankowski, his book Verdun, The Longest Battle of the Great War, Jonathan Bracken, his book The Verdun Regiment, also Professor Francois Cochet and Dr. John Mosier. That is the end of our show. Thanks to Susan Cal, my producer, Peter Malloy and San. Next week, June Bank Holiday Weekend, Battle of Stalingrad, the week after uh, our monthly book show including a book on the rise of Stalin so join us next week and the week after on News Talk we've been talking history good night talking history on News Talk has your fuse box gone haywire is your water pressure too weak or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade they don't last forever you know well the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that So if a block sink is not helping with Wednesday's hump day, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. DNCs apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details.